0: Conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York.
1: Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also the Senior Pastor of the Buckron Baptist Church in Frankfort. The Pastor Well podcast is a podcast dedicated to helping those who serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in their ministry. And today we are especially honored, delighted, privileged to have Dr. D.A. Carson with us. And we're going to be talking about preaching, theology, and uh, the ministry that he's had that has helped uh, so many pastor well. Dr. Carson, it is a joy to have you welcome uh, to the campus of Southern Seminary and to the Pastor Well podcast. It's my privilege and honor to be with you. Well, uh, I, I approach this with fear and trembling. You have no idea how large you loom in my own thinking and heart and mind, my own uh, uh, walk with the Lord.
0: I'm ashamed to say that I have the gift of intimidation.
1: Well, it is uh, because you have been used so greatly of the Lord and uh, you really are a spiritual giant in so many ways. God has used you greatly. So I've, I've got to tell you my, I have two uh, D.A. Carson stories, basically, that I have, want to relate to you. The first one is, uh, doesn't involve meeting you personally in any way, but uh, you, your book, I, I, I bet you would be shocked to know which of your books I would put in the top five most formative books in my lifetime. Uh, of all the books that have influenced me, I doubt you would guess which one uh, of yours it would be, but it is, you ready for it? Exegetical Fallacies. Oh, my. Now, you wrote that late 80s, early 90s, somewhere Yeah, there. a long time ago. Yeah, uh, excuse me, uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yes. I got the wrong decade there because I was uh, in my early 20s when I read it. I had grown up in uh, a uh, an independent Baptist background and there, we were very biblical. I mean, I was taught the Bible. My dad was a pastor. A lot of the preaching that I heard in the circle that I grew up in was what I call uh, nifty-lifty preaching. They, they, they would find a, a line uh, that was sort of poetic, a, a turn of phrase, and lift it out of its context and then use that line really as a window to, to pour in their own systematic theology. And that's what I had grown up with, and uh, it was— it was often very true what was said, but it was not very textual. I also had grown up on so-called word study sermons. Uh, You know, uh, hearing huperetes, under rower. You know, Timothy was Paul's under rower and the gospel was the dynamite of salvation and all those things, so I'd grown up with this. When I read exegetical fallacies, Uh, coupled with around the same time I read Stott's Between Two Worlds. Oh, yes. Those two books revolutionized my understanding of preaching. Uh, About the same time, somewhere in there, I also read Walt Kaiser's Toward an Exegetical Theology. And these three books truly transformed my understanding of the Scripture. They made me want to know the Scripture more. It was largely through exegetical fallacies that I decided I wanted to pursue the study of Greek. I did uh, four years of undergraduate Greek at the University of Kentucky. I did a master's in Greek at the University of Kentucky on classical Greek, but it was exegetical fallacies that really inspired me. So I just want to say thank you. You're, you that that little book showed me the importance of the text. God used it greatly in my life. It, it's still in print. It's still transforming preaching, I believe, and
0: I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you. All of us stand on the shoulders of others in one fashion or another. And I'm profoundly grateful to God if that book was a step in your own pilgrimage.
1: It, it, it was a truly important step. And I remember you even uh, corrected yourself in that book. Uh, you In the you second sh- edition. Yeah. It, you, well, you, you showed how, I believe, some graduate student of yours, oh, yes. I, I believe, in the discussion of uh, the water in the And being born of the water and the spirit. John 3. John Mm 3. And you you showed how you had been wrong, and I believe a graduate student of yours. Yes, uh, Linda Belleville. Yeah, Mm -hmm. corrected you. And that was noteworthy to me on so many levels. I mean, this many years later, I I still remember that very distinctly. My other story that involves you was uh, so... When I, my boys, I have two sons, when they turned 11, I told each of them, I'll take you anywhere in the United States you want to go for a trip with just you and dad. When they were 16, it was anywhere in the world. My oldest son, Michael, who's now a pastor in Missouri, uh, when he was 11, where do you want to go, Michael? Michael wanted to go to Chicago. He wanted to see uh, Wheaton College. He wanted to see Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He wanted to go to the Shedd Aquarium. Uh, and the Natural History Museum, and so we did. In 1994, we went to, uh, to Chicago for his 11-year-old trip, the two of us. We made our way to Trinity Seminary, where my erstwhile professor, later would be my colleague here at Southern Seminary, Tom Nettles, was oh, on faculty yes. with you. Yes, yes, great man. And, and uh, I went to see Tom, Michael, and I went there, and I said, can you introduce me to D.A. Carson? And he did. So that's the first time I met you, along with my 11-year-old son, who's now almost 36 years old and and a pastor. And uh, it was uh, was a
0: a luminary moment for both of us. I have to ask, what kind of input went into an 11-year-old boy who wanted to see a seminary at that age?
1: Well, he, he was always focused. He had trusted the Lord at a very young age, and he read widely. He's very much uh, he's still to this day uh, a theologian. He thinks uh, a lot about the scriptures, and uh, he's read most of your books. Uh, uh, I've failed to say that when we talk about the number of your books, it's, it's rather large. Uh, I'm going to ask you, do you know how many books you've written? Not exactly. It's... <laughs> Depends on how you count, doesn't it? It
0: it does. Uh, Books where I'm either the author or the primary editor is something over 60, but I don't know how many. But then I've edited in three series about another 80 books. Um, The New Studies in Biblical Theology, the Pillar Series, and Studies in Biblical Greek. So those begin to uh, accumulate uh, as well.
1: That's astounding. Do you find it hard to edit the work of others? Is it easier to write things yourself than it is to edit the work of others? What, what's the
0: difference? <laughs> it depends who the others are. <laughs> There's some things I edit that are extremely well done, and it's a privilege to edit them, and I'm learning from them all the time. And there are others that basically have to be rewritten. It would have been easier just to write it myself. So it, it, it varies across the spectrum.
1: We're not going to ask you to name any names. Uh, I won't uh, <laughs> provide any either. Uh, uh, according to Tim Challies, he, he counted uh, 62 books, 257 articles, 115 reviews. Uh, that's, that's a lot of output. Uh, now, I want to... You've spent 40 years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And I I just ask, as you look back over that, has it been hard to stay at one place for all that
0: time? No. Um, In the life of any institution, there are challenges that come along that make the grass on the other side of the fence look greener. Um, But whether in the local church or in an institution uh, i'm biased toward long ministries Mm -hmm. i i think that they produce more good on the long haul every time you make a major move you lose six months of your life in any case just in the logistics and um, if you're teaching at a really good seminary and trinity is a good seminary um, what precisely is the 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 sense of strategy or wisdom in going to another seminary unless you were going to one that is really quite poor where you thought you could help it out or, or, or something of that order. Right. Um, the the only exception is I have sometimes wondered if I should leave the seminary and return to pastoral ministry. Uh, I began in church planting and in pastoral ministry in Canada, and, um, and there is a part of me that would have liked to return, but... Um, some revered friends warned me off. They told me that they thought that my ministry was really properly bound up with training more ministers. And um, and so I didn't want to become the sort of faculty member who is busy training people to become faculty members. Mm-hmm. If I was going to be a faculty member at a graduate seminary, I wanted to be the kind of faculty member who is training people to think highly of local church ministry. And... Um, what has pleased me as much as anything in the last few years is the number of uh, PhD students who uh, are, are pastoring churches or, or doing ministry of that sort today, rather than opting for the teaching slots that most of them could have found.
1: And the untold number of pastors that you never had in a classroom and you will never meet, but who have read your works of exegesis and uh, encouragement and have taken what you've done and put it in the pulpit, into the lives of countless faces you'll only see in heaven. That's got to be a remarkable feeling. It
0: is encouraging, but at the same time, I'm, I'm realistic to re- enough to remember that I myself am the product of people that I've read. Um, Calvin is still in, still influencing me. Uh, Jim Packer still influencing me. John Stott still influ- influencing me, and and many 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 others. And um, and and at a personal level, if the Lord tarries two hundred years, nobody's going to be talking about Don Carson. That's right. They're going to be talking about Jesus Christ. That's so right. It, it's important to put those things in a certain kind of perspective and not uh, pat ourselves on the back. Uh, it's it's been a privilege to. Uh, do the little bit that God has given me to do.
1: And you grew up in a pastor's home?
0: Yes. Dad was a church planter. He was born in Northern Ireland. My mother was born in England. They met in Canada, and both of them had this English background. But Dad felt constrained to plant churches in French Canada, uh, which at the time meant largely uh, the the province of Quebec, uh, which was... um, strong majority French, some parts all French, and very, very strongly and traditionally Catholic. And uh, there had been uh, 70 or 80 evangelical churches in a population of six or six and a half million, but they had died out because of liberalism. There weren't more than five or six uh, Baptist churches and another half dozen Brethren churches. That was it when my dad and uh, another chap from Switzerland started going in, in in the 1930s. And um, and in, in, in late 30s and and, and uh, uh, eventually dad got his theological training in Toronto and then took an English language church in uh, a part of Montreal Emmanuel Baptist Church in Verdun, Verdun uh, with the understanding that he'd be there for five years while he was learning the language learning the French language it was one of the few English churches so he was pastoring an English church while learning the French language better. And then he planted a church in Montreal uh, in French after that. Really? And and, um, that was in the 40s. And um, I was born in 46. And in 48, then Dad moved to another city and was working in another church, that one bilingual. So uh, all his life, he served small churches. The situation in French Canada was hard then. Baptist ministers alone, between 50 and 52, spent a total of eight years in jail. Um, in oh yeah, people wow. don't know that history. Um, no, for, I, I was totally unaware. yeah, for, for, for disturbing the peace, the charges were or inciting to riot or whatever, um,
1: because of uh, the influence of Catholicism. Oh, yes,
0: at the time. It was medieval. Yeah. And um,
1: my dad was a missionary in Brazil, and it was much the same thing yeah, there yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, we kids were sometimes beaten up because we were Modi Protestant damn Protestants. Now it's not like that today. Right. Um, Quebec in those days was so medieval in its outlook in its form of Catholicism that the average family had eight kids, and uh, priest spoke of la revanche la crèche, la revanche du berceau, uh, the that, the revenge of the cradle, by which they meant yeah. we'll will we'll overpopulate you and uh, and gain back uh, control of Canada. Uh, it had the highest. Uh, Uh, birth rate and the lowest abortion rate of anywhere in North America. Today, Quebec is so secular, it's got the highest abortion rate and the lowest birth rate of any place in North America. So it's a different animal today from when I I grew up. But but that was the shape of things. So all of his life, Dad never served a church with more than about 40 people. Uh, Toward the end of his life, uh, a movement of God really came through and um, he he would sometimes speak to 50 60 70 80 people but that that was it he he was not a conference speaker he was he was not a writer um, all of his ministry was faithfulness in small contexts where there was a lot of opposition
1: you you grew up hearing his preaching primarily yes and you came to know Christ at what age
0: oh that's a good question that is hard to answer I understand it that. was either I when i was just to hear your answer yeah it was either when i was 8 almost 9 at a, a Baptist conference in Muskoka in Ontario, there was a preacher by the name of Sam Michalaski who uh, who set out the gospel. And uh, even though I was very young, convinced me I was a sinner and needed forgiveness. And and I knelt down by my bed and, and asked Christ into my life. And it might well be that that's when I was converted. But it's it's also possible that I was being socialized into the faith of my parents without... Uh-huh. being genuinely converted. So I don't know if it was then or in the second year at university at McGill university, when I was studying chemistry that I was converted. Um, so I have a mental checklist of things to ask God. And one of them is, uh, when at, did you save me?
1: At what point did regeneration occur? That's right. Yeah.
0: And if, if I ask him more generically, when did you save me? He will probably smile and say from before the foundation of the world, my son.
1: Well, that is uh, a good answer. Uh, so did, was it your father's
0: preaching that shaped you? Uh,
1: were you listening to other preachers?
0: Not really until I left home at uh, 16 to go to university. And uh, so then it was other preachers. But, um, but up to that point, the only preacher I heard in English and French was my dad. Dad was, um, was a textual expositor who stayed rigorously close to the biblical text, um, an inerrantist, conservative, but he was not a, a systemic thinker. He, mm-hmm. he, he was not a systematician. Um, he, he would sometimes be persuaded by what he read about some new movement coming through, but he was so textually picky that he would self-correct. He, he, he would self-correct not because he had access to really excellent, Educational things in Quebec, but because he just kept reading his Bible, I have his journals, and they're full of uh, bi- Bible quotations in English, in French, in Greek, and sometimes in Hebrew, uh, which which he kept up all the days of his life.
1: Oh, so he he knew Greek and Hebrew.
0: Oh, he went to seminary. He did, and so his Greek was better than his Hebrew, but yes, and he kept them up all his life.
1: Well, you know, this is astounding to me because basically what you you did continued the trajectory of your own father. Yes. Uh, and you just became deeper in the Greek and the Hebrew and the t- seminary training. And
0: Yes, but in all fairness, in it wasn't a straight line. Um, uh, when I went to university, I studied chemistry and mathematics and almost studied English instead, but I stayed on the chemistry side. And I intended to do a Ph.D. in organic synthesis. Uh, I had hoped to go to Cornell, believe it or not. And... Um, and then through a number of things, the Lord called me to the ministry instead. And so I left that side of things and went to a small seminary in Toronto and started theological training, did an MDiv, and, and then pastored, uh, planted a church or two and pastored another on the west coast of Canada before going to Cambridge for doctoral studies. So it wasn't that I had wanted to be like dad all right, my life. Understand. I, I was virtually finished four years away from home in a science degree before the Lord began shoveling me toward toward pastoral ministry.
1: But how precious that the seeds that were planted there. Oh, that's are, true. Are what what uh, bore fruit later in life. That was in a, in a sense my story too. I, I, it wasn't a straight line, but my dad's influence on my life is massive and just the faithful preaching of the word and pointing me to Christ Given me a love for the scriptures above all else. That, that's the thing that I've carried with me through yes. life that I really got from my dad.
0: And also, in all fairness, my father's prayer life was remarkable. I can't remember a day when he didn't spend at least 45 minutes kneeling before his office chair uh, praying. Um, he, he he was an old-fashioned intercessor. And um, and in all fairness, uh, I, I don't want to put it all on my dad. My, my mom who's to say these things but my mom went was was a nurse but she also went to seminary and and she was probably a better student than dad was and um dad exemplified things in public but mom was a very wise head in private um i can remember many many times talking things over with her when i was a kid or a teenager um so it was the two of them together. Yeah. Um, the
1: lines are fallen to you in pleasant that's places. Correct. What a what a blessing. Well, how did you develop your view of what preaching is? Like you 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 would you would say that you believe expository preaching is is the correct form of preaching? Yes. Do you have a definition of expository preaching?
0: Yes, but it's a bit sophisticated. Okay. Because mine is
1: exactly the opposite. It's very, very simple.
0: Well, um, the simple form is it's unpacking what's actually there in the text. It's as simple as that. That's expository preaching. But it, that is indifferentiable from faithful textual preaching or from even faithful topical mm-hmm. preaching. Um, so uh, eventually... I, I want to say some other things about it. It's, it's the kind of verbal um, exposition of what is there in the Word of God in such a way that, and then I fill in a number of things. And one of the things that I, I like to fill in that is sometimes missing from expository definitions is, is that ideally it's the kind of explanation of text that when you butt up against one of the inner canonical trajectories the biblical theological lines, it's 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 it, it, it wisely uh, travels up and down that line to show you where it comes from and how it ends up with Jesus. So, temple, covenant, priesthood, kingdom—about twenty, twenty-five of the biggies, seventy or so smaller ones—that I I think that good expository preaching, when it butts up against these things, takes time. Not every time, but co- often enough right. to to draw the canonical. Tendons, the, the ligaments, to show how the biblical storyline hangs together, because to do that teaches people how to read the Bible as a whole.
1: That's that's the thing right there. You're not only explaining the text; you're teaching people how to handle Correct. the text themselves. Correct. You're discipling them to read and, and understand the
0: Bible, and primarily the text at hand, but in such a way that you're teaching people how the text at hand relates to the broader canon. You're
1: giving them a lens. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that that's exactly correct. Now you're not saying that a preacher must do this in every sermon. It would get very boring. Uh, Right. But that he's hanging this framework. Correct. Uh, well thou art not far from the kingdom. I, 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. One of the things that I've heard you say before in another conversation is like in difficult texts, say in the old Testament, uh, let's take Joshua eight, which is, uh, the, the, Joshua's attack on the city of Ai, or Ai, and uh, God here this is after they've been defeated, and now God gives them a military strategy they put a rear guard behind, and then the attack from the front, the, the inhabitants come out and pursue the army, and then they're, they're, they catch them between the two Israeli divisions and, and crush them, go into the town, kill everybody, uh, then bring out the king, kill him, uh, hang him on a tree till evening and put him under a pile of rocks. Now, modern, the modern mind looks at that and says, what what kind of a God is this? Who Who would order, they'll, they'll use the word genocide. This Here's the genocide at, at AI. And uh, a lot of Christians would be afraid to go near a text like that. You say we should not run from it, but we should run toward the wrath of God. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um let me put it in a broader framework first. Uh, it is always a mistake to preach the Bible apologetically, in the modern sense of apologetically. That is to say something like, in this text, Jesus talks about hell. Quite frankly, I don't like the topic. I'd rather do without it. But, you know, we're going through the book of Matthew, and it's the next text, so I have to say something about it. And So we'll, we'll do what we can. Right. To say that sort of thing is basically to say, I'm gentler and kinder than Jesus. That's
1: right. I'm sitting in judgment on God. Uh, that's
0: correct. So, so there's a sense in which the preacher's job is to understand the text and then make God's point of view as convincing as possible, um, not to apologize for it, but to unpack it in such a way that it makes sense within the canon. It's coherent. It's reasonable. Um, it's, it's, it's reasonable and even on the long haul, canonically winsome. And um, so, so on, on th- things like wrath passages and genocide passages, I, I want to fight against the, the common misperception that the picture of God in the Old Testament is of a pretty harsh boogeyman. And when you get to Jesus, it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a cabana little child. Uh, it's wrong textually because uh, in the Old Testament there are many many passages that say things like uh, he's slow to anger, abounding in mercy, he will not always chide, and 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 things of that order. And in the New Testament, you 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 get all of these passages on hell, most of which come from Jesus' lips, right. and horrific depictions of of hell at, at the end of Rome of uh, Revelation 14 and passages of that. That's order. correct. And so far from saying that when you move from the Old Testament to the New, you move from wrath to grace, I think it's truer to say that when you move from the Old Testament to the New, you ratchet up the pictures of God's love so that the high point of the depiction of God's love is, is what happens at the cross. But you also ratchet up the depictions of God's wrath, and the high point of the depiction of God's wrath happens at the cross. So it's That's as right. if both of these themes are pummeling through Scripture and they ratchet up and they ratchet up and they ratchet up and there's no resolution whatsoever until you get to the cross. And and what flows out of the cross in heaven and hell is, is merely a, a, a reflection of the outflow of what Christ achieved on the cross. And um, so... Uh, you you don't want to sound condemnatory or or angry when you deal with a passage like Joshua eight, but you've got to put it within the canonical sweep, and 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 bring the congregation to Jesus. That's right.
1: Nor do you want to feel like sound like you're sitting in judgment on God. Is That's it, right. And isn't it true that uh, I think the modern mind is much more preoccupied with the mode of death than we are with what happens after death. That's true. And whether those people and AI die at the end of an Israeli an Israelite spear or uh, dying of old age at home in bed, if hell is what awaits the other side, that's that is the real issue. Yes, and that canonically, that's right. That's that's correct. And so we we point to what God does with His Son. If you have a problem with. Joshua 8, you're going to have a real problem with yeah. what God does with Jesus when he takes him yeah. outside the city wall.
0: And it has a bearing on how we see, uh, how we help people. It has a bearing on, oh, oh Christians have always been at the forefront of, of, let's say, medical help in in Africa or digging wells in the Sahel right. and so on. Um, uh, I, I remember reading uh, a learned atheist who said that, uh, Africa would be in a far, far, far worse state. That the uh, if it had not been for the Christian missionaries who who built most of the hospitals in the first place and still in many cases staff them, uh, one Ebola expert said um, that Ebola would have uh, escaped the bounds uh, that 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 constrained it were it not for medical missionaries and, and things of that order. We, we it is right that we should remember those things, but on the other hand, it is also Um, easy to talk about bringing bread to the hungry and clean water to those who don't have it and 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 uh, medicine to those who need it and so on it's it's right that we should do those things but if you do those things and do not warn people of the wrath to come and present the good news of jesus uh, i like what john piper says it's because you don't love them very much Right. That is, you love them enough to help them for, for a few decades here in, in time, but you don't love them enough to care for them for all eternity. That's right. And, um, and, and that's, that's really sad. What, Adrian
1: Rogers used to say, you're just making the earth a better place to go to hell from. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's exactly right.
1: You know, you've helped uh, in pastors and others in so many ways, but one thing, you, you were instrumental in the creation of the Gospel Coalition, Yes. which is, I think, a, a, certainly a major force in evangelicalism. Uh, now, is it true that you and Tim Keller came up with this idea? Where did it come from?
0: It began in a walk in Manhattan in 2002. Um, I,
1: love, I love stories like this. Yeah. We take to the moment and the place, and well, t- an idea begins. T-
0: Tim, t- Tim and I had not met until fairly late, uh, we'd worked together on a couple of projects the the book worship by the book for example I'd conscripted him, but we hadn't met face-to-face We first met at an EMA conference evangelical ministers assembly in London And we were both on the speaking docket and we clicked you know some people mm-hmm. do and sort of sit around and sort out all the world's problems and look around for another world and, and uh, it, w- it was that kind of friendship, so um, I was in Princeton doing something or other and took the train into New York City and both of us had been thinking independently uh, about the um, the desirability of having a central institution or organ or the like that encapsulated the best of confessional, uh, broadly reformed, biblically based Christianity. And there had been other attempts to do that sort of thing. Um, ACE, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, had tried. Right. Uh, but for various reasons, it, it didn't work out too well, And um, uh, which is not a criticism of the the, the men at the time. It was partly the time, partly the place. But we, we, we weren't convinced it was doable, and we weren't sure it needed to be done, but we thought it should be explored. So we began by talking to our friends in our various circles and saying, saying who should be invited to a consideration of these things. And um, we looked for senior pastors. We wanted pastors, not, not scholars, because they ask a different set of questions. So pastor-scholars, fine, but they had to be pastors. Uh, number two, they had to be expositors. Number two, three, they had to be broadly reformed. Uh, Number four, they had to be committed to evangelism with something of a track record in that regard. I don't mean a track record necessarily in terms of numbers, Mm -hmm. but in terms of being committed to uh, unpacking what the the gospel really is. Uh, Number five, they had to be from different parts of the country and different denominations. And number six, they had to be from different races. It couldn't be just a white man's club. So those are the criteria that we had to begin with. And we invited 40 pastors. None of us in the room knew uh, all 40 uh, we first met on the Trinity campus in uh, 2005. And uh, going in, there was a lot of suspicion. But we were already convinced this was of God. We invited 40 people, and every single one of the 40 came. Wow. That just doesn't happen. No, that doesn't. And that included, you know, people like John Piper and Mark Dever and, and, and people whose names you would you would know. And um, Lig Duncan and others. And um, we spent... Uh, half to two-thirds of our time, that first time, listening to one another, learning one another's stories, and praying for one another. That's all we did. We listened and prayed. There were only two formal presentations, one by Tim, one by me, one outlining where we'd come from, and number two, outlining possible ways ahead. That's all we did. Then we brainstormed for a while and got no farther after three days than agreeing that one of us would write a statement of faith and the other... Uh, a theological vision of ministry and we'd come back the next year and see if we were in agreement on enough points to actually put an organization together and they all came back the next year and we argued about those things paragraph by paragraph line by line gradually whipped them into shape and by 2007 um, we ran our first conference and uh, just on Trinity's chapel word of mouth a bit of uh, a bit of uh, uh, internet advertising um and uh there was, the chapel held in 600 was packed out but we noticed that about 75 or 80 percent were under the age of 40 something was happening well, something was happening when when did the web start begin website begin uh, uh in the wake of the 2007 thing we uh, we appointed our first staff member and started the site It began in a primitive way, 2007, 2008, I'm not sure which. Mm -hmm. And um, by this time, we had some idea of what we would like to do. But to talk about all the things that we're doing today and the worldwide impact and the regionalization and the literature and and all the stuff that's free and the the current budget and so on, we hadn't got that far. Uh, What we wanted to do was to strengthen churches in handling the Word of God, encouraging expository material, um, uh, really good books and articles and podcasts and so on that would model things well and all of it free to the end user which 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 decision meant that we our business model had to had to accommodate that yeah and um and and the the lord raised up the money yeah the free stuff is a hard business model it is a hard business model
1: yeah but you you've done amazing is it safe to say that it's it's gone beyond what you em- originally oh, yes. envisioned?
0: Yes, we uh, w- w- our, our sites are visited today uh, by about 35 million different people per annum. That's amazing. And uh, we have sites correspondingly in French and German and uh, Chinese and, and other, other languages. And um, they're all linked in one fashion or another. Uh, the Spanish site is growing 30 or 40 percent a year. Um, and and, and, it
1: continues to have a major impact impact. it does i am so grateful for it this time with you has been wonderful at the here to round out our conversation i'd like to engage you in what i call the twinkling of an eye round uh and just ask some quick questions uh and uh and then we will be done is that all right sure all right uh what preacher
0: most influenced you might be a quick answer, but I don't know how to do these. Which is the no. best of these or the worst? That's okay. other, because different preachers influenced me at different times. Um, th- th- there, there was a time when I listened assiduously to John Stott, and so he influenced me. Um, but I listened to Lloyd Jones. I I, mm-hmm. I I I got to know him pre- pretty well. Um, th- there was a time when I listened to Stephen Olford. Um,
1: he was a dear friend of mine. Yeah. Did you well, ever listen to Barnhouse much? Uh,
0: no, recordings, but I didn't really know him. Oh. Uh, but Stephen Olford actually preached at the seminary uh, that I studied at uh, f- f- on my graduation. Um, and and I, I I quickly became exposed to a lot of preachers. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that if you listen to one preacher for 50 or 60 sermons, you become a bad clone. Mm-hmm. You listen to two preachers, 25 sermons each, and you become confused. You, you listen to 50 preachers, 5 or 10 sermons each, and you learn different good things from all of them and right. become your own voice. I believe so, too. So I, I, I'm not simply in the footsteps of one person. It's just not the way I think. I,
1: I, I understand. I appreciate that. What's, what's your favorite work of fiction? You read any fiction?
0: I read quite a lot of fiction. Do you I, have a, a favorite? No, I, I,
1: I. What is what is something you have read yeah. recently, or something you like? Fiction? Uh,
0: some some historical fiction, things that are grounded, things that are either history or something, an historical novel that is not too far from the truth. Gotcha. In, in in World War II, so certain periods of history that interest me. Um, I read some whodunits but i also read um some shakespeare um uh i like poetry i, I uh, well, you have I, a
1: favorite poet or a
0: favorite category of poet. poetry period there's some poetry i just don't like i i can only take blank verse in small doses <laughs> and then by real masters like robert frost uh-huh. um, uh uh for, for for the 1800s elizabeth barrett browning is superb uh her her poem Cooper's grave is, is, yeah. is outstanding. And, um, and uh, her, 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 poem on her poems, uh, her love poems on, on the Portuguese, uh-huh. uh, are, the are Portuguese simply record. brilliant. I, I um, agree. Uh, uh,
1: do you write with music playing or in silence? Silence. Uh, do you, do you watch much? Do you watch Netflix, Amazon
0: prime, anything like streaming video? We don't have Netflix. I've watched maybe one thing on Amazon Prime. I have it, but I, I, don't, I don't use it.
1: No, I, I, I was curious about that. I was just seeing how much you would uh, use technology and like, personal viewing habits.
0: No, the technology I use is bound up with Gospel Coalition work, or gotcha. it's bound up with Greek Testament work. I use Nota Bene, and I helped to develop Gramcord and so, so the Mac version of it uh, accordance co- comes out of that. so it's it's not that I'm technologically well, understand completely clueless, but on the other hand, um,
1: uh, you're very focused. i'm
0: I'm more focused yeah, and, and yeah I, I see I, I don't like to be entertained.
1: do you do you go do you have a favorite vacation spot? Uh,
0: several. Uh, my wife and I have six or seven times gone to the Lake District in England and walked, uh, hill walking uh-huh. in the Lake District. Uh, we, we love the geography. We love the walking. Uh, so we've done other things. But for our 40th anniversary, I, the, the notion of taking a cruise in the Caribbean turns both of us off. We don't like the heat and just stuck on a boat. Uh, that doesn't turn us on at all. But uh, for our 40th anniversary, um, four or five years ago, we, we, uh, we took an Alaska cruise and uh, with pauses to see bear and whales and and uh, wildlife and the, the the flowers of australia of 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 alaska and and so and, on and you've been married how many years now uh I, we were married in 75 so this is our our 44th year D do,
1: do do you discuss your sermons with your wife after you preach them
0: you Rarely. no um if if she doesn't like something she'll tell me uh-huh. uh, um, no is
1: she gentle or is she is, is she straight to the point she's straight to the point uh-huh.
0: temperamentally she she, she she what you see is what you get huh. which I'd just as soon have in any case
1: uh, i understand um, what would you advise your twenty year old self grow up <laughs> Well, I think, you've done, I think you've succeeded in that. I think your 20-year-old self has listened to you. I can't thank you enough for what you've meant to me personally, for what you've meant to a generation of Christians and seminary students and professors and preachers. God has richly blessed us with you. I'm grateful for your life and ministry, Dr. Carson, and thank you for being with me here today. I'm Pastor Well. Thank you, Dr. York. I'm
0: profoundly grateful to you and your leadership.
1: I want to thank you for tuning in to Pastor Well. You've made our first season very successful. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling others about it. I hope you'll continue to share it. And look forward to season two. We've got a lot of great guests coming up, and that'll be coming out in a few weeks. But in the meantime, if you would like to know more about studying at Southern Seminary, why don't you come to our preview day on October the 18th? You can find out more about it by going to sbts.edu forward slash preview. Register there. You can come, stay in the Legacy Center, meet professors, and tour the campus, sit in a classroom, see what God is doing here at Southern Seminary that will equip you to pastor well.